So I wanted to start tonight with a poem which will be probably an old friend to some of you, since it's one of my favorites, and I hope a new friend for the rest of you. It's by David Budbill, and it's called Bugs in a Bowl. Hanshan, that great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago, said, We're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around, never leaving their bowl. I say, that's right. Every day, climbing back up the steep sides, sliding back, over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself. Or look around, see your fellow bugs. Walk around, say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. (laughs) (laughs) I suspect that probably has a certain resonance at this point. And it is indeed a very nice bowl. You haven't really been able to look at your fellow bugs nor to find out how they were doing, but that will come. That will come. (laughs) So certainly those of us who have been doing interviews and sitting in on interviews, and I imagine Marcy also at Qigong, um, are very aware that there's been a fair amount of suffering at this retreat. And I think, I doubt that there's, is there anybody here who hasn't suffered at all? (laughs) Yeah, right, kind of what I thought. And so I wanted to talk tonight about how to end your suffering. Finally, you said. (laughs) Why didn't you do this talk earlier? (laughs) But maybe you'll see why as I get further in it. So we've talked a little bit Um, in this retreat, you've heard, I think, the term, um, something about the cycle of dependent arising or dependent origination. And this was something that the Buddha saw and understood when he sat under the Bodhi tree. And in the seeing, he understood clearly the cyclic nature of our distress as human beings, the cyclic nature of our suffering. And so, like we said, I think I said the other night, we all know this cycle, this way in which over and over again we find ourselves caught in the same pattern of suffering. Whatever your pattern is, you know. It's probably how all those therapists in Santa Cruz keep themselves supported. (laughs) is that we, we end up doing it again, and after a while we wake up and go, oh yeah, okay, I've done this one so many times, it's time to stop. Mm-hmm. So what the Buddha said was that there are a series of steps, there's a kind of a pattern to it. And in many of the texts and writing about dependent origination, it's talked about as the cycle of many lifetimes. And you can understand it that way, perfectly well, but it's also a very sophisticated psychological description of the cycle of suffering. So he says the bottom level is a kind of ignorance. It's a kind of place where 
in some way you don't see clearly. So maybe you have some story that has been in your family, let's just say something like abandonment or something. So that's that story conditions mental formations. So that conditions things in the mind, states in the mind, so that you that that then conditions your consciousness, which conditions what's called name and form, which conditions the sense base. So now we're in the point, once you get to consciousness, you're then at the point where you're beginning to move towards perception. So you don't have to remember all of this. It's not, it's not terribly important that you remember all the steps. But it conditions the senses, so they arise. Um, and then that, out of having senses, you have a contact with something. You see somebody, let's just say. And that contact conditions a certain feeling. Remember feeling? We've talked about feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And so maybe the person that you see looks just kind of like your dad who left you when you were two. And so the response is maybe quite unpleasant. It triggers all that abandonment stuff, right? We know that. And out of not seeing it clearly through that lens of the story and out of the unpleasantness, then a certain kind of attachment to the situation arises, which triggers um, clinging, which tr- and then that tr- brings the whole cycle into being again. And so then you have birth of a sort, either actual birth in the original cycle, or um, the sort of formation of the new situation, and then it goes through its process. It also conditions... Um, sorrow, grief, lamentation, and despair. So basically the notion is you don't see clearly. This is all you really need to remember. You have this experience. There's a feeling tone to the experience. I like it, I don't like it. Out of that feeling tone, a kind of grasping arises, pushing it away, pulling it toward me, whatever. And then the cycle repeats itself. So... Everything that we experience is perceived through these different lenses. And um, the place where we can change, as we've noted before, is the place where we catch that feeling tone. So when we give you that instruction on the cushion, you know, notice that your experience is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. You know, sometimes it just seems like the most boring instruction in practice. I mean, you know, yeah, sure, it's pleasant or it's unpleasant. And, and, and we don't quite catch how powerful it is. But it's a very, very powerful place because we don't, um, if we don't pay attention to it, we cycle it again. So since my friend Laurie is here, I'm remembering a time some years ago when Laurie and her husband and Russell and I went to a Shakespeare Santa Cruz performance. And um, we were supposed to have reserve seats that had our name on them out there in the Glen. And when we got there, they couldn't find our seats. 
you know, no seats that said either or Atkinson, either my name or my husband's. And I was a little miffed. And sometimes when things don't go that my the way I want them to, when I get a little miffed, I start doing sort of like the queen. <laughs> and, you know, and that's not always the most successful way for me to be. And Laurie, very wisely standing at my elbow as we were, you know, they were explaining, now we can't find the seats, and I think she could probably see my hackles beginning to rise. She said, unpleasant, unpleasant. (laughs) Remember? (laughs) Which was hugely helpful, because I got it, that it was just unpleasant, And almost certainly, if I just took a deep breath and let it be unpleasant, you know, they'd find the seats. And in fact, what do you know? They did. (laughs) They did. But if she hadn't caught me, if she hadn't been there, she hadn't been wise enough to say something, maybe I would have said something rude. And then, you know, a whole cycle of suffering could have gone around one more time. Mary Orr, doing it again. (laughs) So... So that's the teaching about the cycle of how the cycle of suffering goes around and around and around again. And we just often sort of flail around. It doesn't seem like it gets much of anywhere. And certainly, you know, our ego all by itself isn't usually up to the task. And um, so it might come as a relief to you to know that there is a whole nother description of another cycle that is sometimes called the transcendental dependent arising. So it's a, it's a cycle that describes the process of coming into freedom. So there's hope. And the first step in this cycle is suffering. So I'm just going to run through the cycle and then I'll, then I'll tell you. So suffering or straf, stress conditions sometimes faith or conviction and out of that faith or conviction, that conditions joy, which conditions rapture, which conditions serenity or tranquility, which conditions happiness, which conditions concentration, that conditions um, the ability to have knowledge and vision of things as they are, which conditions something that's called disenchantment, that's where the spell is lifted, which conditions dispassion, and that conditions emancipation and knowledge of the ending of suffering. So this is a list that actually is often used um, as a way to be very pre- a very precise description of meditative experience. But I'm not going to talk about it that way tonight because it's also a list that actually is very useful, again, as a description of psychological processes. So it begins with your suffering. You know, there you are, one more time, depressed, anxious, doing it again. And sometimes, you know, when those cycles that lead us into some kind of suffering happen often enough, there's a kind of despair even that arises in the mind and the heart. You know, how am I ever going to get out of this? You know, I just keep doing it and then of course we beat ourselves up and there's lots of judgment and criticism and that doesn't help so much but once in a while that suffering 
brings us to a place where we open up to something new, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and you finally go, you know, maybe I should do something a little bit differently from the way I've always done it before. And so, you know, you go on the internet and put in meditation groups, Santa Cruz, California, and come up with Vipassana Santa Cruz, and you go to a beginner's class, or someone says, you know, I've got a great yoga teacher, come to yoga class with me. Or someone says, here's this book, you know, you ought to read this book, or listen to this tape, or, you know, all of the different things. We'd probably have a lot of fun talking about all of the different ways that one way or another we got pulled into practice. And so you hear something, right? You hear something that that begins to change your perspective. So my very favorite going to retreat story comes from the lineage of um, Goenka's teaching. And in, in, in the world, you've probably heard of maybe um, Goenka is a great um, Vipassana teacher from India. And he teaches a lot or has taught a lot in this country. But when a retreat happens that he personally is not teaching, instead of the, the leaders teaching it, they have videotapes of Goenka giving instructions and whatnot. So somebody went to one of those retreats and, you know, he went the way we all often do, kind of in distress and despair and worried about his life and not sure what to do. And they put the videotape on and he sat there and he listened and he heard Goenka say, give your attention to your desperation. And he thought, wow, they know. This is great. And he just felt seen and held and welcomed and looked around the room and figured if all these people were attending to their desperation, maybe it wasn't so bad after all, you know. And, and he went to bed quite happy and he got up in the morning feeling good and looking forward to the first day of retreat and they put the videotape on again. And he listened, he was a little less tired and a little more awake and he realized that what Goenkaji was saying was, give your attention to your respiration. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, it didn't matter, right? Because whatever it was, you know, in his suffering, he he felt heard and he felt welcome and he was there. And then sometimes out of that class, that tape, that being heard, that's the place where some faith or some conviction begins to arise in the mind. And you go, oh, this person has something. Or these people who wrote the book, or whatever it is, they have something that I want, and I'm willing to listen. You know, And maybe I'm even willing to try it. So you keep going to the class, or you don't leave the retreat, or whatever it is that you do. And, and so you stay, and you put yourself in that system. And it's kind of, it's really quite interesting, I think, and it's something to really take quite seriously, that suffering in this cycle is a condition for faith and conviction to arise. So something has to push us far enough so that we let go of our habitual, ordinary way of doing things. And, you know, we all, if you go to 12-step programs, you go to AA, they will tell you you have to hit bottom. 
And some people have high bottoms and some people have really low bottoms, but you gotta hit bottom before you turn around, you know. There's a wonderful story about Najuddin, you know, and and um, Najuddin is um, he comes upon his friend who's poking around, you know, out under the street light and he's looking for things and he can't you know and Najuddin says to his friend, he said, well, what are you looking for? His friend said, well, I'm looking for my keys. And so Najuddin starts looking around. He says, well, you know, like you would say, where where did you leave them? Where did you last see them? And his friend said, oh, I last saw them. I left them in the house. (laughs) And Najuddin said, well, why are you looking around out here? And he said, well, there's more light out here under the (laughs) streetlight. He wasn't looking in the dark. <laughs> or I think of our friend Noah Levine. Jason's a very good friend. And Noah, you know, whose dad is Stephen Levine, so he grew up kind of hearing about practice and meditation. But Noah, you know, he was a kid and he did his own thing and um, got himself into some trouble and ended up in juvenile hall and it was sitting in juvenile hall that he remembered the basic instructions for mindfulness practice and thought, well, maybe I'll try it. And now, you know, he's a Dharma teacher like his dad. <laughs> Wonderful Dharma teacher. So, we all know that place So finally opening to trying something new. And even if you're well along the path, you know, sometimes then there comes a place where you have to open a little deeper or a little farther or a little more to some level of practice that you haven't been at. Sometimes we're just asked to try it. You know, live as if that kind of practice. I, I gave you those instructions earlier this evening when we did metta practice. You know, you don't always feel kind and compassionate when you extend metta. But the instruction always is do it anyway because just saying the phrases, just creating the intention to meet other beings with kindness and compassion actually begins to train the mind to go in that direction. Mrs. Black Bear came to a meeting late and said, I'm feeling really tired and frazzled after dealing with my cubs. What if I don't feel compassionate? And Raven, who was the teacher, said, fake it. (laughs) That doesn't seem honest, said Mrs. Black Bear. It doesn't begin with honesty, said Raven. (laughs) So think about that. That's a koan. (laughs) So we do whatever we do. We come to practice, we change our lives a little bit, and things get a little bit better often. And maybe there's some ease or a little more sense of balance. And you go, yay, hooray, it's working, and some joy arises, right? And and, um, sometimes in some of the texts when this step is reached, it's said that the faith has the aspect of leaping forward. Mm. And so we all know this place in our practice where we get excited because it's helping it's working and so what do you do you work a little harder and you go a little farther 
and you practice a little more. Some of you are here for exactly that reason. You know, you came to a sitting group, you tried a day long, you did a book study group, and then you thought, well, maybe I'm ready for a retreat. I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, they're always scared. I think I'm ready to go on a retreat. I don't know what people think we're going to do to them. So, so we get to that place where we take on a little more discipline in our practice, or we do go to the retreat, or we follow the precepts as part of our everyday life, or we meditate regularly. And this brings even more joy. And, and in, the, in the meditative world, as joy develops, then it develops into rapture. But even, even in our everyday life, there's a place where we just start, you know, you can feel it in your body. You're just feeling better. And there's a lot of intense kind of interest that begins to come up around the practice. And so then, as we're you know, that it's gone that much deeper and we're really more into it and things get calmer. And there is a kind of tranquility that arises. And maybe even your life is just a little bit saner, you know? It's not quite so crazy as it was. Your mind is a little quieter. There's not quite so much anxiety. And it's easier to meditate and it just seems smoother. And that gives rise to happiness. So there's a simile in some of the texts that might help you sort of see this. And it's, there you are, you're crossing the desert, and you don't have enough water, and you are really, really thirsty. And then in the distance, you know, you see the lake, and, and the, at, just at the point when you get it, that it really is a lake rapture arises in the mind and the body. You're there, you did it, you're going to get the water. Everything is kind of in that direction. And happiness is what comes after you've had the drink, you've swum in the lake, you've taken the bath, and you're lying there in the shade. So there's a sense of ease and contentment and rest. And so... When that begins to happen in the mind and the heart, then actually we're able to settle a little little more and we can see more clearly, we can focus better. And, um, And the next step in the cycle is seeing things as they are. Because you know how it is, when we're in a lot of distress or we're just starting something, we don't always see things as they are. We don't have the ability to do that. And at this point, though, things have really settled down enough, we're easy enough, we're happy enough, and we can really take a good look at whatever it is we need to see. Perhaps we see where we're caught, or we see some of the truths of the Dharma. You know, we we actually are able to have some insight into impermanence or the nature of our suffering or the nature of self. And um, <clears throat> it's actually called knowledge and vision, if you remember in that, the, in that mm-hmm. series of steps. And it's not just an intellectual knowledge. It's a very deep kind of seeing where you really get it in a way that you haven't gotten it before. <laughs> 
those of you who have been practicing for a while are probably quite familiar with that place where you thought you understood something about, let's just say, impermanence. And then something happens and you think, I never saw it that way before. And you understand it in a little deeper level. So uh, there are three areas of seeing things as they are that are really important in Buddhist practice. And we've talked about them quite a bit. They're called the three characteristics of being. And so one is the, the insight into the nature of our suffering. And I actually hope that all of you show something about your own suffering while you were here on this retreat. You know, that... that um, just just even beginning to notice when we're suffering and when we're not suffering and what the conditions are can often be hugely helpful. And maybe, you know, maybe you caught the moment where your attachment to something being a particular way really caused you a lot of suffering. And or maybe another moment when you weren't so attached and and oh look at that, you know, the same sound. You know, and I'm not so stuck. You know, the the person is breathing heavily, just like he or she always does. Mm-hmm. And one time it causes you lots of suffering, and the other time you go, "Oh, isn't that sweet?" You know, <laughs> there there he is, just doing his breathing, or there she is, whatever. Um, and or maybe it's about the weather. You know, when is it going to get warm? And 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 then you think, "Oh, the fog is so lovely and quiet." And, cool and drippy and delicious or the food or whatever and and maybe you even occasionally find that you can really actually let go the suffering starts to come up and then you know you go oh okay it's just it's just and and you let go or we see impermanence i mean where has this retreat gone amazing huh here we are it's sunday night Wednesday night, Wednesday night, I was about to say Thursday night, Wednesday night, that's back there with the dinosaurs. It's gone, <laughs> you know. It will never come back. And and sometimes in slowing down on the retreat, we actually see how things arise and pass so quickly. I mean, not forget Wednesday night. How about supper, you yeah. know? It was here. The apples, the lentil soup, you know, all of that. And now it's gone. And so one thing after another arises and passes. And as Bob was happily reminding us last night, we die, you know. And, or maybe not so happily, I don't know. But, um, so, and sometimes that awareness can come and we go, oh, really, you know, I really am impermanent. Nothing stays. And the Buddha says, this is one of the key insights in our practice. So every time you notice impermanence, even in a small way, it's actually very helpful. And then the last is is the insight about self or no self. And it's pretty simple. You know, sometimes people think, oh, this is such an esoteric part of the teaching, this no self business. I don't get it. But really... Um, just beginning to see how selfing causes suffering, how that place where we make I and me and mine, the middle of it all, that we invariably cause suffering, is hugely important. And, you know, 
for several days now. You haven't had to be anybody particular. Maybe the person who washed the dishes, you were the person who washed the dishes, or the person who weeded, you know, along by the gumpa or whatever it was you did, but you didn't have much more identity than that. You might have been actually enjoying it, but tomorrow, about two o'clock in the Mm. afternoon, things will change. Mm. And if who you are has been not so available, uh, it will come back. Mm. You will not forget. Mm. And, um, And that's one of the biggest stories that we carry around within ourselves is who we are. And every one of us can tell that story. You could tell me who you are, what your preferences are, how you came to be who you are, what you like, what you don't like, who your mother was, you know, what your ideas are about what you'll be doing next week. And we carry this into every situation and we often respond out of who it is that we expect or that we think that the situation sees us to be and who we see ourselves to be. So, you know, um, I carry my Dharma teacher self into a lot of situations. It's kind of fun to be in a place where nobody knows, you know, that I'm a Dharma teacher and I don't have to be even a Buddhist, right? I can try that on for size and see what happens. Um, and, but the thing is, we lock into patterns of behavior, right? So if you, we all have places where we say, I am a person who, you know, I am a person who needs a nap every afternoon. Mm-hmm. I am a person who only wears certain kinds of clothing or only eats certain kinds of foods or only has certain kinds of relationships or whatever it is. And we create a very, very strong story. And then that limits us. And we don't necessarily see all the options. We're seeing through the lens of that story. This me business is a concept. So, you know the Big Dipper up there, right? The Big Dipper, right? Mm-hmm. If you got in your little trusty spaceship and went cruising up there, what would you find? <laughs> Would it be the Big Dipper? No. The Big Dipper is connect the dots, right? Or you think of the map of the world, right? North Pole on top, United States, Canada up above, South America down below. But there is a MacArthur map of the world. Probably Deborah knows it. Where are you? Yeah. And in the MacArthur map of the world, guess what's on top? The South Pole is on top. And there's Australia and New Zealand and Africa and South America. And down here at the bottom is the United States and Canada. Now, is the North Pole on top? (laughs) Is the North Pole on top? No. It's just a convention for seeing things. And the first time I saw the MacArthur map, it actually made me really think about how much of my cultural conditioning is based on the fact that North America is on top. And all those other folks are down there. And, you know, down there's not so good, right? (laughs) Very interesting. I advise you all to, if you can't find a MacArthur map, make one. Turn it around and study it. At a recent retreat, someone said, you know, 
I suddenly saw that I could actually really love. I didn't always need to be coming from aversion. And someone else talked at that same retreat about they hadn't really, they'd been advised to go to a different kind of retreat, but something scheduling or something made them go to that one. And how, you know, that it was out of their comfort zone, but they did it, and how much it had meant to them. When we don't know, when we don't have a story, sometimes we can get much closer to our experience. There's a Zen koan that says, not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. The minute we know, we create some kind of distance. So how about not knowing me for a little bit? You know, how about not knowing who it is that you think you you are and see what comes up. It's not that you will suddenly forget who you are. You know, you won't. You live on the west side of Santa Cruz and you will not be wandering around tomorrow down in Watsonville thinking, gee, you know, who am I and where am I supposed to go? That time and space identity actually will stick around. But it's very, very helpful to begin to loosen that sense of self. And that's a very important way to move towards the ending of suffering. So, when we have these insights, sometimes very deep insights, might have happened for some of you, here, deep insights into the nature of your suffering, the nature of dukkha, into impermanence, into the nature of self, of no self. These glimpses can sometimes be absolutely life-changing. Really changes everything. And that's the point in the cycle when knowledge and wisdom arise. And it's when that happens that this most wonderful next step comes, which is disenchantment. So it's when you really begin to see, oh, impermanence, dukkha, no self. It's as though the spell is lifted. We're not functioning, not seeing clearly. We're seeing much more clearly We're not under the enchantment of I'm going to be around for forever or I'm solid and separate and I'm the most important thing in the universe. That's a spell. That's a spell. A lot of the world lives under those spells. But you can begin to be disenchanted. And that's the way towards freedom and happiness. So, you know, think of the enchantment of all those commercials. How many gazillions of commercials do most people see any day of the week? Think of the enchantments created by political leaders over time. I won't name any names. Or think of the enchantment, the spell that was cast on the people who flew into the World Trade Center or people who do suicide bombings. Or even, I pondered this a little bit the other day, Um, I was downtown and I looked in the shop window and I discovered you can now buy an Obama candle 
like a like a votive candle with Saint Obama on the front, <laughs> just in case you would like to have one. And I thought, well, you know, maybe that's carrying that enchantment of hope a little bit too far. <laughs> you know, it's not like lighting a candle to Obama is going to do us too much good. I hope I think the person who made it did it tongue in cheek. But you know, that's its own enchantment too, where we our hope gets too strong and we're not seeing clearly. A period of retreat like this one really allows this disenchantment to take hold more deeply. And you know, that you can really sit with an insight that you have into impermanence or into the nature of your suffering. And just in case you want a little encouragement, longer retreats allow it to take hold even more deeply. So, you know, if you're thinking gee, maybe someday I could sit for 10 days or two weeks or a month even, you know, do it. It's a great experience and it really will allow things to change. Some Sometimes longer retreats, all retreats, but longer retreats especially, really change lives. People come out changed. You do not really return completely to the person you were before. Just those days of simply being present, eating, walking sitting, being with the breath. The enchantment can't hold under those circumstances, actually. And so then, dispassion, which is a kind of letting go, arises. Because when we see that clearly, we can let go. It becomes much easier to let go. You can't let go so early on, you know, when when you're really caught. It's very, very hard to let go when you're in the middle of your dukkha and your stories about yourself and what you have to have. But when you begin to see clearly then you can let go. Ajahn Sumedho last night saying, you know, let go, let go, let go. Be like the earthworm who only knows two words, he said, let go, let go. And then, you know, we really want to wake up and we want as much freedom as we can get and we go home and you know, and I know, I've talked to a number of you today, you know, who really want to do things a little differently when you go home. I want to sit more regularly. I want to come to Vipassana Santa Cruz once in a while. I'd like to sit another retreat. and Or I want to do more service. Or I want to do more study. Whatever form it is that this new intention and letting go um, takes. And, you know, sometimes... Sometimes it's just as simple as seeing a different way to do things. You know, it's that ability, you're not sitting down there at the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, crying mm-hmm. and moaning. You're mm-hmm. able to look around and go, oh, nice bowl. Mm-hmm. You know, big difference when we can do that because our perception and our response has changed. <coughs> so then, the very last piece as we begin to be able to find in any moment the place of freedom and ending of suffering. And we begin to see, oh, look, I do know, I know, and you know that you know how to do this. So in its most advanced form, this cycle could, of course, lead to full awakening. And... It's a very useful way of seeing, oh look, I can start, I can start, you know, with suffering. And then, you know, that 
out of that suffering, oh, my faith arose. You know, I saw that. And, and then there was some joy and some rapture and, you know, some lifting up and some energy. And, and then I got calmer and saner. And, and then there was happiness and ease. And then I could focus better and I could see things as they were. And then I wasn't so enchanted. I wasn't so caught anymore. And I was able to let go and come into this place of freedom. Really amazing. So, for all of us perfectly ordinary people who are not getting fully enlightened, the most important lesson in all of this is Nasruddin's. Look for the key in the dark, (laughs) not in the light. Look for the key in the dark, not in the light. Because we don't want to do that, do we? We think, look for the key in all this suffering. You've got to be kidding me. You know, it can't possibly be here. This is terrible that I'm suffering. But, you know, Nasruddin is saying, you know, you've got to go back in there into the dark and look around there because that's where you lost it, is in the suffering. Mm-hmm. It's in, it begins with suffering and knowing that you're suffering and being willing to explore your suffering and to understand its causes and to want to change. You know? We couldn't have given this. It would be nice to give this talk at the beginning of the retreat and give you this little outline. <laughs> but, you know, you can't because, in a way, you have to have sat with the suffering that you've sat with for the last four days, five days, um, in order to be able to hear it. Mm-hmm. And what's true is that the simple act of being willing to start looking around in your suffering is the beginning of this cycle that can take you all the way and then take you around again and again to deeper and deeper levels of awakening. So I think I will end with a poem from David White. It's called Sweet Darkness. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. (coughs) There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will be your womb tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. So let's just breathe together for a moment.
So thank you very much for listening, and please enjoy your walking. And please be very protective of your silence. It can be very easy to nibble at this point. Don't nibble. Maybe one other thing that I'd say to help support and guard your... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.